there has never been a case of a serious discussion between Americans and Saudis on how to move the security relationship forward and how to take it beyond uh, this oil for security covenant, right? Which was always transactional in the sense that you give us the uh, free access to the cheap oil, we'll protect you uh, from external dangers, right? Because internal was always a little bit complicated. We weren't exactly sure how to do that. But externally, it, it was straightforward that should there be any kind of an external threat to the kingdom, we will be there to um, intervene and uh, provide them with security. Well, that formula in many ways has expired and it has expired a while ago. Um, and if any circumstance or event proves that more clearly, it's the 2019 attacks, right? Uh, against Saudi Aramco uh, by the Iranians directly, not even by proxies or uh, allies of them in the region, directly, straight from Iran. And so that reinforce the point that you know whatever we had with the saudis in terms of a security arrangement needed to be considerably revisited uh so that it actually works for both sides and that it actually provides them with the, the security that they need this is the 966 episode 81 mr richard wilson hello how are you hey how you doing i was just uh you know shocked by my image in the in the uh webcam when you started when you launched i was you know regretting my image <laughs> it's weird it's weird to see because we have to look at ourselves when we do this it's just like part of the whole screen setup on the technical side so it's just it's weird because i'm talking now and i can see myself talking and that's kind of distracting so <laughs> yeah it is what it's, it is. it's it's you know it's easier for me because when i talk i see me and you Mm -hmm. When you talk, you see you and me, which is not quite the same bargain. But <laughs> well, I mean, but we're the same size on my screen. If I could make you way bigger, I would, and maybe make me into a little <laughs> thumbnail because at least I could be talking with you, which is what we're doing here for the eighty-first time on the nine six six. Great conversation coming up with defense and security expert Bilal Saab from the Middle East Institute. He's just really great, and this conversation really flows. Uh, just the dude knows so much about this space, so. Um, just you're going to love that coming up. Before we get to that, we're going to be talking about the Green Future Index from MIT and a little bit about Saudi Arabia's Saudi Green Initiative. And uh, we'll be discussing data centers and um, data cables, data cables. Yes. So Fiber that's optic cables, yeah. sort of. Yeah. So and that's I'm excited because I'm going in obviously cold on that discussion. So I can't wait to hear what Mr. Richard Wilson has teed up for us before well, we get started really quickly. Please subscribe to this wherever you're getting it, either audio or on YouTube. We love seeing those numbers come up. And actually, Richard, uh, we will start reading some positive and some critical feedback here in future episodes because we're getting a lot of it. And I think it might help uh, listeners and viewers. Um, you know, encourage them to leave a positive review if they can for us. Just helps us out a lot. So, um, anyway, good yeah, stuff. that'll be interesting. <laughs> I'll be interested. I'm already, I'm already, you know, uh, it's confirmed that I have a, you know, I have a face for radio. <laughs> so I'm not sure if we if we have a, a bunch of those comments, we can just maybe if you just group them into one, unless you do it individually, you know, instead of doing them all individually. Well, I got to say that the audience is quite sophisticated. We get a lot of questions. Um, we had one that was uh, asking about an AI summit that was coming up in the fall that I think one of us mentioned, Richard, and I can't find it anywhere. Uh, so 
Oh yeah, yes, it's nice that. to be kept. Uh, it's nice to be kept uh, closer to task. I, I also, um, I also like the ones where they go. You know, they they like the episode, and then they suggest. You know, will you are you going to do one on this topic? Yeah, uh, that's come up uh, a number of times, and that's fun because that means they're engaged and they're interested in in, in the guests we're bringing on. Sure. And it means we also don't have to do the work in sourcing ideas that are being brought to us, which we love. Save us a little efficiency on that. Um, Richard, what do you think? Let's get going. What's your one big thing this week? Let's roll. My one big thing is a bit of a hodgepodge. It was a wormhole that I didn't quite get all the way into. And by the way, you know, we have a double blind one big thing where I don't really know what yours is and you don't really know what mine is. That's actually not part of the course. Um, yeah, maybe we shouldn't do that um, in the future. <laughs> but well, it's, it's just the so, way it is. <laughs> sometimes it gets crazy. So, <laughs> so it's just a little overview, really. And uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is positioning, positioning itself to be a, a, a data sort of. You know, it's it's digitalizing at a at a, a tremendous rate. It's got a huge bounce in that regard with the pandemic. Um, but it's already a major feature of the of Vision 2030 goals, um, and it's trying to become a data center for the region. Um, and it and, and all this was, I just looked at it and said, okay, so so you can do that, and and there's and there's a reason to do that, but there's a significant infrastructure that underpins underpins this goal. And there are two of them. One are data centers, actual data centers. And two uh, are fiber optic cables, which run all over the world, and and uh, you know are, are expensive to put in. And most of them run undersea fiber optic cables. And so I just looked to see where Saudi Arabia was with this, and and so let's look at the data centers. Um, in uh, in in 2020, uh, the Saudi Ministry of Communications, Information Technology (MCIT) launched an 18 billion dollar plan to build a network of large scale data centers across the kingdom. This is really led, in, in most part, by STC, Saudi Telecom. Although there are a lot of private companies sort of uh, jumping in, including Americans, uh, American companies. Uh, and the goal for the STC goal is to eventually end up with a 16 facility data center strategy. Um, Basically, putting bringing on 125 megawatts of capacity. Um, the interesting thing is, is uh, there was Al Raji Capital did a report, and they were looking at the the what was needed, and what they were saying was current capacity is 60 megawatts, which is not a lot. What's needed over the next five years is 360 megawatts, and the goal is uh, by 2030 to get to. Well, get beyond that. The goal is to get to uh, 1,300 megawatts, 1.3 gigawatts of, of data capacity. So it's needed. It's not uh, sufficient, but it's it's planned and coming online. Um, and and so so that's one side of it. So and you have others. Uh, Microsoft is building a data center. Um, a lot of Huawei is building a, a significant number of data centers and working with local uh, uh, entities. Um, so, you know, there's this one part. The other part is fiber optic cables, global fiber optic cables, which run all over the world. There's a significant bottleneck coming through from Europe and points north through the reds, essentially, uh, you know, following uh, waterways. So there's a significant bottleneck coming through the Suez Canal. Egypt, you know, something like 15 to 30% of all data coming to the region uh, and the globally 
comes through Egyptian bottlenecks. Uh, Egypt sort of has has it's it's known that uh, it's it's a it's a operational bottleneck, but also Egypt charges more, so it's it's a bit of a you know it's a bit of a problem. Um, right now in train, and this is what I want to I wanted to get to, just so our our listeners and our viewers to hear about this. These are things in process. Three interesting projects in terms of undersea fiber, well, uh, undersea and, uh, and on land fiber optic cables are underway now. One is is spearheaded by Google, and this is called uh, the Blue Ramen fiber optic cable, and it's going to be 500 miles long, costs 400 million dollars, begins in Italy, passes over Israel before reaching Saudi Arabia, Oman, and finally on to India. Big deal. 16 fiber optic cables. Obviously, Google, you know, is 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 putting this in. They expect it to be completed in three years. The other one, um, major major project. We talked about it when we talked about uh, Mohammed bin Salman's visits to Greece. Um, it's the East Med Data Corridor (EMC). Greece and Saudi Arabia are are spearheading this, and it's an undersea and land cable, and. Uh, STC is a big uh, holder, uh, public power company, and Greece is a big holder, and Cyprus Telecoms operators are, are big holders. Uh, it's going to be um, expected to be completed by the end of 2025. Uh, will be a significant uh, corridor for data between Europe and India, running again through Saudi Arabia. This is a big part of this thing. And then there's a third one. That is more in the, the feasibility stage, but it's quite interesting. It's called the Trans-Europe Asia System, TEAS. And it's it's a 20,000-kilometer cable that runs through four GC states, <laughs> excuse me, as well as Israel. And it would bypass the Suez Canal altogether. So it'd come across the north on land, come across the north of Saudi Arabia and, and and come out the Gulf side, and uh, it, it has, you know, it has a, it's really a, a, a very big proposition that apparently is gaining significant political traction in Saudi Arabia. Um, that I, there's no expected time arrival date for that, but you know, it would essentially hook up, uh, you know, the GCC states, Saudi Arabia, in between Jordan, Palestine, Israel, and all the way down to India. Uh, so it's a significant, it would be a significant uh, addition to the cable capacity. So anyway, that's it. I wanted to look at this. Uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, has these goals, but we often look at things and say, well, what's the, what are the, what are the impediments to implementing these goals? And for, to be a data center, uh, you know, a, a nexus in, for data for the region, you have to actually have data centers and you actually have to have undersea cable, both of which Saudi Arabia is taking steps to to try and implement and expand their capacity significantly. Yeah, Richard, this is really good. I wonder why Google named it the ramen, the blue ramen. I mean, maybe it's a I, big I, ramen noodle going on the bottom of the ocean. It's, <laughs> it's named after Indian physicist Chandrasekhara Venkata Raman. Ah, who founded the noodle dinner. 
right well, as well I, I assume that i assume that indian <laughs> business was your second guess yeah. <laughs> it was actually <laughs> um no richard this is very good i'm seeing a piece too in middle east eye that that also kind of lays this out just as you did that's really good oh, i didn't know oh, any of this um go oh, ahead by please. the way sorry uh, appropriate to that um and i'm gonna find it now um I've, I've got to pull it up the, the middle east eye uh i want to get him on the show this the guy, guy the, the journalist paul cochran the, yeah david cochran or I've paul, got cochran. paul cochran here yeah, yeah he wrote two interesting ones because he also wrote, talked about um yes so he, he's he's written a number of things for middle east eye and seems to know his business i thought that be might be interesting to get him on the show that well this is the official invitation for paul cochran to come join us because i'm looking yes. at his most recent piece that came out yesterday it's got a map of all of this and it kind of just shows you exactly. it's like it's all just trans it's all going around saudi arabia and not through it but you can see where it's going so that's why it's significant if they can get this is it duda is the Duba, yeah. In, in Saudi Duba, Arabia. Up near, up, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, up, up near Neom. Yeah. Right near Neom. So you can see how the TEAS, the Trans-European Asia system, would cut right through. I mean, it's almost like the Panama Canal for data cables. If they could just figure out how to get it there and have it go over <laughs> like to the to the Arabian Gulf, as it is officially known on the 966, um, you could save a lot of effort going all around Djibouti. And yeah, I mean, this is really cool, this map. And this article is, uh, David, please, or sorry, Paul, Paul Cochran, yeah, please join bad. us on the 966. This is really cool. Well, he um, did another one for, he did, sorry to interrupt. Uh, he did another one for Middle East uh, I, uh, Saudi Arabia's digital dream, Silicon Valley for the Middle East. So he's deep into this. This was sort of where I, the launching point was Paul Cochran's excellent work. Uh, and, and sort of saying, and that's how I got there. Sort of, if you want this, you know, the Silicon Valley from the Middle East, you've got to have it apart from the talent, but first you have to actually have the infrastructure. And yeah. that, that leads you to data centers and, and, and fiber optic cables. Um, and that overland one is quite an interesting proposition because overland is a little more expensive. It's a little lot more dicey. It can be done because there's not a lot of, uh, there's not much to go around population centers up, up in that part of the kingdom. But um, yeah, the, yeah, Paul Cochran, please come on. I think you have some interesting things that we'd love to hear. So do you have a sense of why overland is more expensive? It seems like it might be easier to just drop the cable on the land versus running it on the ocean, but maybe that's it's more expensive because you have to protect it or route it around cities and towns. You, do, you, you worked it out. It's just more vulnerable. Okay. And it, 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 you know, you have to be able to, you're going to have to, the maintenance security issues are greater and 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 tending it, you know. Once you drop it at the bottom of the sea, um, unless it's a Nord Stream two, you know, it's, yeah. it's usually not bothered with. Yeah, <laughs> I really like these topics, Richard. Where I am, I just learn in the minute, in the moment, speaking with you about it, and then now my like brain has been jolted to life thinking about the really stupid, dumb questions that I could ask this gentleman, like how big the cable is and what it looks like and. Would it be well, easy to cut? You know, there's actually in that in that next pull up the the, the um, digital dream. It actually has a sort of a, a cross section of a cable. They're not big. They're like uh, you know lots and lots of you know glass optics. You know, I don't know the exact uh, you know how it's constructed exactly, but uh, you know maybe it's just they're not big. 
it's not like a huge pipeline going through. They're all, they just have to be wrapped and protected and laid. Um, and there's, you know, when you look at those, those graphs and uh, that you're showing the maps, they're just, you know, tens and tens of them sort of, you know, running through the uh, waterways. Yeah. So Egypt has sort of had the monopoly on this for a while and it's, there's an opportunity to basically go around Egypt or somehow end the bottleneck. Fascinating. Well, one of the things he does say, which is interesting, he talks about um, Egypt's sort of monopoly, just as you said, and their mismanagement of it. Instead yep. of instead of uh, sort of doing more, making it easier, they sort of said, "Okay, we've got this. We'll just overcharge you, and we'll, we'll you know it, it will we'll slow it up a little bit, and so on." And which is, of course, spurring competition all around the region. And his point is, this is good because uh, you know the competition will keep it will help everybody if data transport and access is is less expensive. Everything, every everybody benefits. The line in this piece, Richard quote, but just as a grounded ship in a canal will cause delays, as happened with the Ever Given in March 2021, so Egypt is considered a choke point by the fiber optic cable industry due to the lack of alternative routes across a geostrategically critical part of the world. That's funny. It is good. <laughs> and, and it's apropos. That is really good. And, and you know, th that's short-term thinking. And so as a result, they're going to end up losing their chokehold on it. Yeah, Richard, we're going to have to have on the 966 Cable Week or maybe Fiber Optic Cable Week or yeah. something like that so that we can really get into this. We can have Paul Cochran join us, get really into the cable, really it, understand this issue. Because this it is, is, cool. one, is one of those things that, you know, it's, it's the part of the iceberg that's under the water mm -hmm. in terms of data and digitization. Yeah, very, very cool. This And as you noted, and this is important because it sort of underpins the VC startup ecosystem right. in Saudi Arabia, starting a business, expanding your business, or you need this stuff. You need to be able to rely on it and not have to think about it. And yeah. so if they can get there, very cool. Yep, yeah, Richard, my one big thing this week, taking a look at the Saudi Green Initiative and a report done by MIT called the Green Future Index. Context here, Saudi Green Initiative, we've talked about it on this program. It's a concerted effort coordinated effort by Saudi Arabia to reach a set of national goals within a few decades. And that places the kingdom in a position to combat the effects of climate change and put in place sustainability measures to basically put Saudi Arabia into the future when it comes to, comes to this stuff. So for any nation, this is a huge undertaking, but especially so for Saudi Arabia, which relies, as we all know, heavily on oil for national income and to power its own growth. And listeners or viewers of this podcast know very well how much the kingdom is growing recently. So it's a bit of a challenge. You want to balance economic growth with reaching these goals. What's good about the Saudi Green Initiative is that it's not just a good PR move, although it is a very good PR move. It actually eventually is a good business model and is much needed for Saudi Arabia. For one, temperatures are rising significantly in the Middle East. And recent scientific reports suggest they're rising faster in the Middle East region than elsewhere in the world, putting it at greater risk. And this is something, Richard, that the Saudis know. They're not shying away from this at this point. They know it's a challenge. This paragraph from the Saudi Green Initiative website, quote, the need to reverse the effects of climate change can clearly be seen across the Middle East and Africa from increased desertif desertification, excuse me, and dust storms and uh, dust storms that impact air quality to dwindling fresh water supplies, rising temperatures and extreme weather events already affect quality of life and economic opportunities. 
And then it says Saudi Arabia is spearheading far reaching tailored action and is proud to play a key role in leading international collaborations for a more sustainable global future. So they know this. They know the challenges they're, they're We talked about this on this on the podcast, Richard, that they sort of are facing it head on and are ready to take it on. So huge goal for the Saudi Green Initiative, big plans, long time frame. What's going to happen to 2050, 2060 and what's happening now? So this is sort of where I started and kind of just checking in on this initiative. The Saudi Green Initiative includes a plan, as we know, to plant 10 billion trees in the kingdom and 50 billion trees in the Middle East region by 2050 and 450 million trees and rehabilitate 8 million hectares of degraded land by 2030, which it says would cut about 200 million tons of carbon emissions per year. So I saw that, Richard, and I was like, how's it going? So far, Saudi Arabia has planted 18 million trees which is a, a large amount of trees. Hard to really hard is. to understate that. Um, and of those, there are 13 million mangroves, which are, as I understand it, the best in terms of combating climate change and global warming. Interesting. Um, that's just within the first year plus. Obviously, a long way to go, but pretty impressive start so far there. You'll see big jumps too in this effort, Richard, as the years go forward. Places like King Salman Park in Riyadh, which will be 6.4 square miles of parkland and cultural spaces will add hundreds of thousands or millions of trees to the overall goal. I don't know. We actually need to do a segment on this in the future. King Salman Park, something that was announced in 2019, and you see signs for it when you drive by that area in Riyadh, and you don't see anything else because there's a huge fence right. with King Salman on it. and says park coming soon, essentially. But, it, <laughs> but if you look at things online for this and just kind of wrap your head around the size and scope of this. It's six times the size of Central Park. It's going to be almost totally trees. So they're planning a huge, massive version of Central Park in the middle of Riyadh. Things like that will jolt the kingdom forward in its tree planting goals. Of course, it's so much more than trees. It's protection of large areas from development, upwards of 30% to be protected in Saudi Arabia. And then we have a totally different topic of commitment to renewable energy solutions, sustainability, et cetera. So measuring how's yeah. it, how it's going so far, there is a new index created two years ago by MIT called the Green Future Index. And it's sort of uh, considered one of the more authentic reports that signal the progress made by countries in terms of sustainability. It's conducted annually, measures the extent to which 76 countries that participate and territories are moving toward a green future by reducing their carbon emissions, developing clean energy, innovating in green sectors, and preserving their environment, as well as the degree to which governments are implementing effective climate policies. So it's really a holistic look at how a country's doing at fighting climate change and mitigating its effects and embracing sustainability. So um, there's good news and bad news, Richard, in this report for Saudi Arabia. I saw the report mentioned in news articles that highlighted mostly the good. But when you get into it, it isn't all good. Saudi Arabia was categorized as a, quote, climate laggard which is one of four categories. It's the second worst along with 20 other countries. And then there's a bottom 17 countries that make up the 77 countries. The first is green leaders and then greening middle. And then the one that Saudi Arabia is in climate laggards. And Saudi Arabia is sort of in the middle of this group. And then there's finally climate abstainers. And I guess that just means that they're just <laughs> not doing anything or don't believe in it. I don't know. But um, Number one is Iceland and last place in this study, Richard, I'll let you take a guess at it if you want. Last place? Last place, number 77 out of 77. Um, 
Alabama. <laughs> if oh, they were, if oh, they declared, oh. if they declared independence from the United States, there is no doubt in my mind <laughs> that they would beat out Iran as last place. I just thought last that was place. interesting. Yeah, I mean, India is still doing so much coal. Yeah, so Saudi Arabia moved ahead of Australia, which I thought was interesting. They seem yeah pretty lib on this stuff, but they also have a lot of coal interests in Australia. They obviously do a lot of mining, as we know from our segments on mining and minerals on the 966. But there is good news, and always take the bad news first, so you end with the good news and things seem happy. Saudi Arabia did jump 10 spots from last year's report. So we sort of see these policies coming into effect, and you can see it in the individual um sort of measurements they have. They do an overall ranking, which is what Saudi Arabia jumped 10 spots in, but then they have carbon emissions. They're 19 out of 77. Energy transition, they're at 12 out of 77. So some areas, they're really doing very well globally. I should note to our disappointment, of course, that the United States is not in that top category. They are in the second category of greening middle. So we we have some work to do. What's their rank? What's our rank? I think we're 22nd, yeah. um, you know, which is kind of disappointing because, you know, we can do better than that. Let me see. The greening middle, United States, 21st. So we're just on the cusp of being green leaders. But let's be real. We know that we're not really there as a country well, yet. So it might be interesting after, you know, in a few years after this with with this uh, debt reduction act that was had such so much renewable energy and uh, an emissions reduction that was recently passed. So I missed it. Sorry, who's last? Last is Iran. Iran. Yeah, right. I figured I it was, was kind of interesting. But, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I would have thought it'd be like North Korea or something, but maybe they just don't have a they don't have enough industry to worry about. I think that they were not on this report. So there's only 77 countries. So there yeah, are, what, true. 100 countries that are just not, yeah. they're not in for this. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're just saying, yeah, we don't. So they're below. Maybe there's a fifth category of we have no idea. I can't imagine North Korea prioritizing sustainability in any way yeah. other than in terms of food supply. But yeah, Richard, I just think this was cool because it's like we have this, you know, we're going to look for at the, at the SGI over the years coming forward. And then we're going to compare it to how it's doing. I saw an article, by the way, about this that claimed that Saudi Arabia was number one in producing renewable energy, and they credited this report. And this was in Arab News and a few other places. I didn't see anything about that in the report, so I didn't want to mention that. But um, that was something the Ministry of Energy claimed, and I, right. there's just not in the report. But I just think this is interesting. We have a pretty credible now, you know, non, uh, well, I guess U.S.-based, MIT-based study on how to evaluate how a country is doing in the you know pursuit toward sustainability. And then we have Saudi Arabia's plan and we can already see it working. And that's my one big thing this week. I loved it. That's very cool. Uh, and, and it's encouraging. The two things you said where Saudi Arabia was in the top 20 energy, managing energy transition, mm-hmm. which is, you know, obviously bodes well for keeping and moving up the ranks mm-hmm. and, uh, and the emissions, I guess the net emissions, which mm-hmm. is interesting, you know, since, you know, and, and, you know, they're not looking at obviously, you know, emissions resulting from exported crude because that's at the host country or the purchasing country. So that's a different deal. Uh, but that's, that's a really good one. I, I had a really interesting conversation the other day, uh, earlier this week with a, a buddy of ours in, um, in Riyadh. And he said, Richard, you know what? It's, it's, it was five o'clock there. <laughs> 
He said, all right, so it's early April. It's five o'clock. It's 83 degrees. And he said, you know, you know, that you'd expect it to be hotter than that. And it will get much, much hotter. And he said, and this is anecdotal in the extreme, but this is someone who's been in the kingdom for a good bit. He said, you know, this, things seem cooler to me. And he, he, he said it rained 25 days out of 30 in January. Uh, you remember, I mean, it, it just it seemed like it was raining all the time, which is, again, is unusual. He also said he really believes, this is him, uh, entirely anecdotal. He really believes that it feels cooler, that he's in Riyadh. It feels cooler because there's been so much greening going on. You know, there's more green space. Uh, again, entirely anecdotal, but there for what it's worth. The, the larger trends, as you noted, you know, clearly, you know, the average temperature is going up. But, you, you know, it, it, it's interesting, you know, as these 18 million trees go in, <clears throat> and probably a lot of them have been in Riyadh, if you start to see a change. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if just like having more trees around you and having it be just generally less dusty and flat and sandy around you also adds <laughs> to the aesthetic sort of feeling that it is cooler, cooler. and there's more shade yeah. generally. I think they're so early on in how many trees they're planting in Riyadh that I'm not sure it would actually, and like you noted, it's an anecdotal thing. I'm not sure how much of a difference it actually makes yet, but I do think that when King Salman Park is fully open and there's a massive, huge green area in the middle, I can't imagine that not having an impact. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, 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 you know, on these numbers, I mean, the big deal is going to be, you know, reducing uh, emissions and not only capturing it, that sort of thing with green space and cooling. But I mean, and, and it, they have, you know, significant, uh, you, know, renew, you know, renewable energy plans. So and obviously they have natural gas plans. So, yeah, this is. But again, going back to the, the, the MIT Green Future Index, which is really cool. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, I, I like what their trendings are, you know, the areas that they're trending in, you know, those things seem like they're there. They would keep they, they, it's an additive thing. You know, they keep getting better at this and they'll keep getting better at the entire uh, ranking. Yeah. And Richard, the one area in which they dropped significantly, I think they dropped 27 points was in clean innovation. And I thought that was interesting because I don't really know totally what that means, but it seems like that's more relative to other countries versus an overall goal of reaching sustainability. So I thought that that was kind of interesting. It's like, what what happened there? Did 26 other countries get more innovative? So it, I don't know what that, that means. That is interesting but because it, I mean, yeah, yeah, especially, if, and I'm just guessing, you know, if you're talking about carbon capture, which is really what they've been pushing very hard at the, at the, COP level and the UN level, which global level, uh, any kind of discussion having I mean, climate change, they want to say, look, let's not just do reducing emissions. Let's talk about how much carbon we can capture and take out of the environment. You know, that's something they really want to become very proficient at. I wonder if, I don't know if that's in that area, but you'd think clean technology that would lump in there, but who knows? Yeah. And the billions of dollars are putting into green hydrogen. I mean, that might be part of the energy transition category, not clean innovation, but I'm sure there's a lot of innovations going on at the air product, NEOM, yeah. JV that's happening yeah. there. But, so. you know, as you say, like you say, that may be attributed to the U.S. You know, that's an, you know, that's a U.S. company. So maybe that innovation is not, you know, does not go on to the Saudi lender. 
Let's see the U.S. get to the top category, by the way. Yeah, exactly. We got to see that. Um, I'll be interested. This is great. You know, you know, that's like, I have a rooting interest. Obviously we all have a rooting interest. This is our planet, but you know, it'd be nice to see us, uh, our country, uh, get into the top tier. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, no more relegation for the USA. No, being first in the second category, it's almost like a, Hey, you're not quite there yet, guys. (laughs) And this is a U.S. based study. So there's no cheerleading going on. Um, but yeah, very interesting. Richard, what do you think? Let's get to our conversation with Bilal Saab. Excellent. Excellent conversation. It's great to have him back on. He, you know, another excellent piece that we recommend to you that talks about a really important topic for the U.S.-Saudi relationship. So he has some really good insights. Enjoy. We are pleased to be speaking with Bilal Saab, a political military analyst on the Middle East and U.S. policy toward the region. He is a senior fellow and director of the Defense and Security Program at the Middle East Institute, adjunct professor at Georgetown University, author of the book published in 2022 entitled Rebuilding Arab Defense, U.S. Security Cooperation in the Middle East, and recently a new paper for the Middle East Institute entitled After Oil for Security, a Blueprint for Resetting U.S.-Saudi Security Relations, which we will focus our discussion on this week also served as a senior advisor for security cooperation at the U.S. Department of Defense. Of course, he also bears the honorable, unremovable mark of being a previous guest of the 966. Bilal, (laughs) welcome back. Thank you for joining us, and nice to see you. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you guys for inviting me again. I'm actually surprised you invited me again. I thought I uh, blew it up last time. <laughs> no, actually, I was actually, actually, I was just looking at last time, and this is, this is why we love having you on the show. You had just written, this was about a year ago, Actually, a year ago, March, our, for your first year debut on the 966. Um, and you had just written a really good piece called A Gradual Reset with Saudi Arabia. And, mm, yes. and we had talked about, you know, at some point, obviously, we wanted you back on the show. And now, essentially, a year later, you've just written a, just a terrific analysis after oil for security, a blueprint for resetting U.S.-Saudi security relations. Lucian referenced it. Um, and this is why we love having you, Bilal, because this is timely, uh, important, and really informative analysis on the relationship. Other people aren't really, uh, it's not out there. Um, and and that's why, thank you for coming back. We're really excited. No, it's a pleasure. Uh, Richard, before you say anything, I want to I I tell the audience that <laughs> you did me such a nice oh, favor uh, at Heath, Heathrow Airport. Uh, the lady did not like the size of my toothpaste, so she confiscated it uh, per rules, I guess. Uh, and you were kind enough to buy me uh, another toothpaste so I can take with me on the plane. Thank God I was in business class, so I didn't cause any crisis with whoever was sitting next to me, you know, a uh, bad Beth crisis. <laughs> but um, but I do remember that kind of gestures, and it will not go unnoticed. So thank you very much, Richard. Well, I, I wish I could take more credit for it. It was at a boot in the, um, in you know, in the in, in, just at the airport, and they had a four for three deal. And I said, I don't need four. I'll give one. I'll give one bottle. <laughs> I wish. I really wish I could take more credit than that. But you know, it basically it got me a good deal, Bilal. So I had to share. So I was headed to Al Ala, and you were going to Riyadh, right? Correct. Yes. Correct. Yes. And I got to, we talked about it. I got to Alula a week after you did. Yes, correct. 
I'm so upset that there was not a video or a, a photo of the handoff of the toothpaste. I would put it on a t-shirt and send it to both of you guys. The story is amazing. I'm so glad you yeah, said that. That was a strategic event. I should have taken pictures. But I did take <laughs> pictures of Al-Ula. I mean, I put them on LinkedIn. Are we allowed to say that in here? LinkedIn? I'm not promoting yeah, anybody. I'm absolutely. not getting any money from LinkedIn. Yeah. But anyway, uh, what a terrific, unique, beautiful spot. Uh, I had a great time. I wish I had more time to spend there, but uh, I definitely will go back. So let's talk about this. We just we talked about it in the, when we were talking beforehand, Bilal. This article, this analysis, it's not an, an article. It's a significant uh, piece that uh, Bilal wrote, you know, a blueprint for resetting U.S.-Saudi security relations. Essentially, just to open it up, you say, although U.S.-Saudi bilateral ties are on the mend, ambiguities in the transactional nature of the 1945 Oil for Security Covenant contribute to mistrust and mutual tensions. But the burden of fixing or stabilizing the relationship is a shared responsibility. One more. <clears throat> While there is a consensus among U.S. and Saudi officials and observers on the need to further upgrade the two countries' defense relations, there is no serious discussion of how this could be achieved on a more strategic level. It's time for Washington and Riyadh to reconfigure their security ties in accordance with new U.S. geopolitical priorities and the new Saudi defense requirements. Isn't that amazing, Richard? How old is this relationship? And yet you would think that we've had many opportunities, not one, many opportunities to discuss how we could upgrade security and defense ties with the Saudis. And yet, truly, honestly, and it's not like I'm, um, you know, basing this on my own, you know, analysis or viewpoints. I've, I've, you can imagine I've talked to a lot of people while and researched a lot while writing this uh, uh, analysis. And there has never been a case of a serious discussion between Americans and Saudis on how to move the security relationship forward and how to take it beyond uh, this oil for security covenant, right? Which was always transactional in the sense that you give us the uh, free access to cheap oil, we'll protect you uh, from external dangers, right? Because internal was always a little bit complicated. We weren't exactly sure how to do that. But externally, it, it was straightforward that should there be any kind of an external threat to the kingdom, we will be there to um, intervene and uh, provide them with security. Well, that formula in many ways has expired and it has expired a while ago. Um, and if any circumstance or event proves that more clearly, it's the 2019 attacks, right? Uh, against Saudi Aramco, uh, by the Iranians directly, not even by proxies or uh, allies of them in the region, directly, straight from Iran. And so that reinforced the point that, you know, whatever we had with the Saudis in terms of a security arrangement needed to be considerably revisited uh, so that it actually works for both sides and that it actually provides them with the, the security that they need. Um I very much emphasize the word shared responsibilities because there's no way this is going to work if we were to take the lead and if we were to take action without the help of the Saudis. They have to be invested simply because it is their own security. They have responsibilities just like we have responsibilities. And that kind of conversation, that kind of arrangement, we've never had with the Saudis. It was almost always, as I mentioned in the analysis, one-sided. You know, we come up with a statement like the Carter Doctrine, for example, right? 1980s, early 1980s. 
matter of fact, 1980, uh, with the State of the Union address of former President Jimmy Carter. He's saying, if we perceive that there will be significant uh, threats to our own interests in the Persian Gulf, we would intervene militarily to protect those interests. And at the time, you remember, it was Soviet Union a year before having invaded Afghanistan. We were worried about them going south to the oil-rich fields of the Persian Gulf. And so that was sort of like a communication to the Soviets more than anybody else. It wasn't really about the Iranians, although 1979 happened, obviously, with the Iranian Revolution, Islamic Revolution. But this was a message for the Saudi, uh, for the Soviets, first and foremost. In that message, there was no discussion whatsoever with the Saudis what the parameters of intervention were, when would we do that, when would we not do that, what is it really about Saudi security uh, that we understand uh, that goes beyond like a massive full-fledged invasion, right? Because there's a whole plethora of other contingencies and circumstances that would threaten Saudi security to which we didn't really have an answer for the Saudis, right? So we owe it to obviously ourselves first and to the Saudis to have a conversation that is a lot more complex than what Jimmy Carter said many, many years ago, which again is unilateral, one-sided, has very little to do with Saudi security per se, and more about the U.S. interests. What we perceive to be an attack or a threat against U.S. interests is what matters the most. It is less about Saudi per se. Well, the Saudis finally realized that, well, this is not sufficient. Uh, we need to have a conversation about this. And obviously, 2019, once again, and several other instances before that, I get into those in the analysis, right? When uh, there was a bombing in the uh, mid-90s of the Khobar Towers, right? The Iranians blew up the Khobar Towers, killed a lot of Americans. Um, and we did nothing in response to that. Of course, it was also a an attack against Saudi national security. It happened on their own soil. But we did nothing at the time. The Clinton administration decided that uh, the risks of escalation were too high. And so they may have responded through covert means or sanctions or what have you, but there was no military intervention at the time. Same with um, with the um, uh, 2019 unprecedented attack by the Iranians. Okay. And so logically, the Saudis came up with the conclusion that we, we need to have a conversation. Okay. Whatever worked in the past, worked in large part because we were lucky that there was no significant attack like the one that happened in 2019, right? The proposition of us coming to the rescue was never really tested. And then finally it was in 2019, and we didn't. Now, I do write about it somewhere else where the, the Saudis were very clear to us that please do not respond without our you know, without consulting with us and without making it clear to us that we're not going to be caught in the crossfire. We're not going to be caught in a shooting war between you and the Iranians where we feel very vulnerable. But beyond that kind of communication that we got from the Saudis at the time, we were really not that predisposed to actually responding to what the Iranians were doing, right? And so that obviously caused a huge crisis of trust. Uh, the conversation about American protectorship guardianship, whatever you want to call it, Richard, uh, became extremely relevant for the Saudis. And here we are now having the same exact conversation about what is really the future of our security partnership with the Saudis? Can we even call it a partnership? I mean, it's a relationship, obviously. It's an old relationship. We've never had to have those conversations because the Saudis were never attacked this way. And now they are, obviously, because of Yemen, because of the 
relationship with the Iranians. Now we can talk about later, you know, what they are doing now with the Iranians, with the um, diplomatic uh, accord that they came up with, with Chinese uh, assistance. But put that aside for a moment. As far as we're concerned, we owe it to ourselves and to the Saudis to have an honest, transparent, realistic conversation about what would it really entail? What would it require for us to provide them with security without having to upgrade this thing into a full-fledged alliance? Because, oh, by the way, that's not going to happen. For political and strategic reasons, we're not going to do that. But there is so much room, so much space for upgrading the relationship in a way that doesn't have to escalate to a defense pact. So I think I've said too much, Richard. You can take me in any other direction you want. Well, no, I think that's a that's a good context. And I would add, in terms of the Carter Doctrine, we we did have, you know, an enormous success at the time when 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 we interceded after Iraq invaded Kuwait, and that, of Correct. course, the motivation there is it was in our interest, um, and so it, it happened to be also in the Saudi Arabia's interest. So there was a nice. Uh, coming together of, of mutual interest. Correct. I think the afterglow of that kept us going for a long time. Yes. A lot of goodwill that came out of that. But let's return to your 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 piece. And and I like that you sent out the scenario where the sort of overarching Carter Doctrine is insufficient. Mm -hmm. I think you go on to, to look at a couple other things uh, that are critical to going forward and, and where in, in, in your analysis, we're falling short. Both parties are falling short. Yeah. First is the sort of the philosophical, and I'm going to take one of you. You lay out five points at the beginning. I'm going to take three. Sure. Uh, since Desert Storm, that you know, what we we're just talking about, Washington and Riyadh have sought to improve Saudi armament while paying scant attention to Saudi defense management. Right. Which is critical to manage, employ, and sustain those Saudi weapons. So I want to put that in. So we've got in in your analysis, we've got a we're missing that phase zero, and I, I want you to elaborate on what the phase zero yes. is. Yes. Um, and then this is combined as you go on and, and, you know, you draw out and you make it very clear. The United States has a, and this is a point five that, that Bilal adds. Again, I want you to get to this, this piece. It's very good. Uh, point five, the United States has handicapped diplomatic presence in the kingdom and its enormous security cooperation posture has never been properly organized and integrated. Right. Emphasize that last part. Never right. been properly organized and integrated. So let's let's take these each of a piece, all right? Yes, yes. Uh, the philosophical, uh -huh. and essentially, you know, what we're doing with them to to uh, uh, to service what we perceive as defense needs. You're essentially saying this is misguided. So philosophically, what's changed, Richard, is that we want to now help them get into a position where they can actually defend themselves, right? That doesn't mean that we're going to abandon them. That we're going to be doing things that we've never done before with the Saudis again. That is breaking news. I mean, this is shocking that for such a long relationship, how how many years? 75 plus? Yeah. We've never yeah. done that with the Saudis. Isn't, isn't that remarkable? It's shocking. Now, well, every, every time you write a piece, Bilal, because, uh, and, and, you know, we've been involved, I'm always stunned and amazed because for, for vast swaths of Saudis and Americans, this is their full-time job. Yes. Yes. So I'm always amazed that, you know, but also when you break it out, and I think it's worthwhile breaking out in the institutional uh, obstacles to it uh, and other things that have, have, you know, have been in the way, you can sort of see why it's happening. But it also, it, it, it emphasizes why what you're saying is so important now. Sorry to interrupt. No, you're good. So to get to that point, 
where they are in a position to contribute more meaningfully to collective security interests, to defend themselves. There's responsibilities on their end and responsibilities on our end. We've never looked at those seriously, ever, until very recently, which is really why it's an embryonic process right now, which is why you're not really seeing a whole lot of fruits yet. But at least the mindset has changed, finally. And so it's going to take a while before you really start seeing some return on investment. On the Saudi side, you got to get a lot more serious about not just the weapons that you're buying, but also how you effectively employ and sustain, right? So this is where you talk about phase zero. Phase zero is when you and Lucian basically prepare for this interview so effectively that it becomes almost effortless that the actual interview itself runs so smoothly. It's the same thing in military. In the military, if you're not prepared for war, you're not going to do very well on the battlefield. It's just 101, right? And so for the Saudis, phase zero or what you call steady state operations, everything that you're doing to ready yourself, to prepare for war through management, through defense spending that is appropriate to accounting, to human resource management, all those things that you and I talked about on the first episode, right? All of those things you got to get a lot more serious about. And they are, okay? This is where the Saudis, since at least 2017, 2018, started their own Goldwater Nichols process, which is something that we did many, many years ago, right? So 1986. This is the restructuring effort that looks at all those unsexy, boring, but incredibly critical things about the defense sector, right? So by all means, keep buying weapons. I'm not saying don't, but just integrate those into something of a more solid defense foundation that allows you to use those weapons and sustain them over the long run. And we can do that for you. We can advise you in all those things because we've done it before. We have that relationship with you. We know your strengths. We know your weaknesses, but you have to do that yourself. So generate combat power and then effectively use it and employ it and sustain it. Okay. On our end, how the hell are we going to provide that kind of advisory service if on the ground we're not postured to do that? What does that mean? It's just fancy words for all of our presence in the kingdom has been geared towards much more tactical things that have very little to do with what the societies really need, which is this whole defense managerial process, right? So we have many outfits in the kingdom. We've had them for many, many years. Heck, all the way back to the 1950s. And I'm not going to get into acronyms and names here because they don't matter. But the point being is that there are multiple outfits that we have in the kingdom. None of this infrastructure that we have in the kingdom is integrated. They don't talk to each other. Kind of like pre-9-11, our intelligence community. They don't talk to each other, right? And so now what we need is to better organize ourselves and integrate all of these disparate parts that we have in the kingdom so that we are in a position to provide uniform, unified advice to the Saudis to help them go through this defense transformation process. Right now with the... Okay, I lied. I'm going to mention a couple of acronyms. USMINIM, you've had people from USMINIM on your show, right? Brad Gandy before. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, that's one outfit. Pretty big. Army. Then you've got the one with the Ministry of Interior. Then you got another one with the SANG, the Saudi National uh, Guard. All of those pieces, they don't talk to each other. They have different responsibilities. They have no clue what each is doing. And you're supposed to have an integrator, okay? Again, I'm not going to use military terms. I have them in the piece. An integrator, a communicator, a coordinator to organize all this stuff 
and provide the right kind of advice to the Saudis. We don't have that. We tried to do that back in the day. I hate to say it, but we've had military personnel at the very high level in CENTCOM who are not happy with the reorganization for different reasons, okay? But now you're getting Saudi demand to actually reorganize our own posture because, by the way, we can't do that without the permission of the Saudis. Why? Because we signed so many agreements with the Saudis and we would have to go back to them, consult with them if we were to reorganize it. That's why you sign contracts, right? So I, I want to jump in here, Bilal, because I think, although I, I want, I know you want to don't get lost in the weeds, but I, it, it speaks, and I thought this was very instructive. I did not know this. And it speaks to your point that uh, this discussion hasn't been had up until very recently, and there, you know, there's been no movement in this. And let's talk that U.S. the U.S. submit you submit them U.S. military training mission. Yes, hundred billion plus dollar operation in terms of of things they they oversee. OPM Sang, uh, Saudi Arabian National Guard, and you mm -hmm. also mentioned there's USA MAG, which is sort of their counterintelligence, what we do. But but just to, you submit them established in the fifties. OPM Sang established in the seventies. Oh, USA Maggie in, in the early aughts. It was fascinating to me to learn that because of these are all underwritten and paid for by the Saudis, they do not come under U.S. Central Command purview. I, 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 as opposed to other, and, and you can take it from me if you want, as opposed to almost everybody else in terms of our relationship. So this is a unique situation. Is that correct to say? Yes. And I was shocked to learn that myself. I didn't know that. Going into this research, I didn't know that. I didn't know it until I read your piece. How could the Saudis be paying through, again, it's a complicated process that has to do with like administrative fees coming from FMS cases, FMS being foreign military sales cases. Those ad admin fees are the ones that are actually paying for a lot of this presence that we have in the kingdom. So you can imagine why the Saudis finally realize that, wait a minute, we're not only paying for your presence, but we're not getting the right kind of advice and the right kind of services, this is messed up, okay? So now, technically speaking, it is true that they're paying for a good bit of that presence. But if you were to get me a CENTCOM commander who would instruct his folks on the ground to better organize, to better integrate and all that, I think he or she one day hopefully can do it. I mean, this, this rule uh, or implicit rule should not really stand in the way of a major reorganization effort, right? Now, you still have to consult with the Saudis, fine. But guess what? As I told you before, the Saudis are now on board with this reorganization of our own presence. Mm -hmm. They came to us, I have it in the piece, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, where in this uh, strategic joint planning committee that we have with them, mm -hmm. they came to us and said, look, this disparate infrastructure that you have, it's not doing us any good. And yes, we are to be blamed for it because back in the day, each of these ministries, they were kind of like their own fiefdoms run by different princes. Correct. There's a new sheriff in town. He wants to consolidate. Okay. So if you want to hear it from us, here it is. Here's our blessing. Here's our directive. Please go ahead and make it consistent with what we're trying to do. Okay. You have our green light. They communicated the, the, that to us very clearly, whether it was last year or two years ago, I can't remember, okay? What have we done since? Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because the political relationship is so toxic and nobody at the leadership level is really instructing anybody to follow through on what the Saudis told us. So you've got this 
structural block. Mm. You know, and 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 it 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 uh, goes to reason that you know uh, use of midum that's been around since the fifties or uh, opium sacks in the seventies. They have established significant bureaucratic ties, significant political relationships. Correct. And it also goes to reason that these established organizations are going to be resistant to change. Absolutely. Yeah, this is classic bureaucratic politics stuff. Yeah, and and just to, just as opposed to Bahrain, Jordan, Kuwait which are under CENTCOM command, which anybody operating in those countries would have to be responsive to a CENTCOM directive. Correct. It's an entirely different thing. All right. So you have, right. you have structural uh, obstacles mm-hmm. within it. Um, you also talk about the need for an SCO. Yeah. Uh, and can you elaborate on that? SCO is a security cooperation office. Essentially, it is another one of those elements that would serve the role of organizing all of this assistance that we provide to the kingdom, coordinating it, integrating it under a single command. So we did that with so many other places, and it worked out beautifully, right? Whether it's Jordan, whether it's in uh, um, uh, Bahrain, whether it's in Kuwait, we have that. Except in the kingdom, where it's supposed to be even more obvious that we should have it because it's a bigger country and mm-hmm. it's a yeah. closer partner. And oh, by the way, hundred billion dollar FMS active cases with the kingdom. Right. How the hell do we not have that in the kingdom? So again, some blame should be assigned to the Saudis for many years in the past because that's exactly how they wanted it. They wanted it to be right. divided because they're the way that they were running their defense system. It was very much divided amongst princes and so on and so forth. Um, And so we were very sensitive to that. We did not really obviously want to force the issue and tell them, look, the way you want to run things is not really the ideal way. But hey, I mean, they were paying for it and we can't force it. Okay. Now they're telling us different, that we are ready to reorganize this thing. Please come back to us and tell us how you're going to help reorganize your own presence. We have done nothing so far. So this is where the security cooperation office is so critical because it is one of those elements of integration that we need to organize this entire presence in the kingdom that we have and finally understand who the hell's doing what. You've got all these pieces and you don't know who's doing what. It's remarkable. What is your job at US Minim? What is your job at OPM saying? What is your job at MOI MAG? And who's overseeing whom, by the way? Tell me about the chain of command. Those things that I sought to research and try to find answers for in this piece, which thank God it got a lot of traction in DOD, by the way, but I, 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 it doesn't matter if it got traction if nothing's being done about it. Apparently, and I mentioned it, every time this conversation is had, it never goes beyond, uh, above the SES2 you know, level, which means that it's never high level enough to get to the SECDEF, to get to the interagency, to get, to get the National Security Council, you name it. It always at a lower level. Everybody understands those problems, by the way. No one's oblivious to them. We've been they've been going on for a long time. The issue is about leadership, which which I try to avoid in the piece because the moment you say there's no leadership to do anything, then then what's the point? But my 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 mission, my 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 purpose in this piece is to at least lay out, as the title suggests, a blueprint. So whenever you guys are ready to actually execute, let me offer you my blueprint. This is the executional challenge that we have, but let me at least define it to you. Let me describe it. Let me give you some recommendations so that one day when there is leadership, when there is a will on both sides to make this happen, here's the blueprint. Nobody had done that before. Nobody had done that before. 
Right. And, and it's in, it's in the, the piece. So, I mean, definitely it's, it's, a, I don't know if it's appendix or if it's actually in t- incorporated in it. Oh, um, I give credit to my colleagues here at MEI. They did a fantastic job with this nice uh, infographic. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, MEI, by the way, is, I think is doing good work. You've got a lot of good, they got a lot of bright minds over there. Thank you. I'm so, biased, obviously. <laughs> so if everything. I could, if I could just ask a question. So in this new SEO, like imagine if they actually do it, you yep. submit them OPM saying uh, USA Mag. Do they go away? Do they get folded no, in and go everybody underneath? Now, well, no. I mean, they would sort of uh, have different sets of responsibilities that are a little bit more like uh, what you would do with um, training groups that would work on particular weapons, for example, like a Thad battery, like a Patriot battery, or how to field this kind of equipment or that kind of equipment. Purely tactical things, right? The SCO would be the sort of the integrator, the one that is looking at this really from a strategic point of view about how we're actually delivering assistance to the Saudis. So no, there's no real need to discontinue those. I mean, you can keep them if you want. I'm pretty sure it's more difficult, frankly, to remove them than actually keeping them, but just change the responsibilities. Uh, Certainly do not keep the format that we have right now where basically people are running their own show and nobody's talking to each other. You know, one of the things that I've heard uh, frustration on the Saudi side is is exactly that what you th- there's a, a not enough senior people are actually tasked with this that it doesn't rise to the appropriate levels to actually uh, uh, create change push change um, yeah. is that accurate that's legitimate to a point I'll tell you why it's legitimate and why it's legitimate to a point it's legitimate because with that kind of massive muscle movement and reorganization I'm sorry you need a four star Okay, nobody's going to really be able to do this massive reorganization without having political weight, without having enough stars on their shoulder, because they're going to be issuing all sorts of orders and nobody listens to people if they're not influential. Okay, so you need leadership. I get that part. But do not overemphasize this because the real experts do not necessarily have to be four star generals. The real experts of defense management are simply defense management specialists. Those are the folks that you actually need on the on the ground in Saudi Arabia to help the Saudis undergo this defense transformation process. So get, yeah, for fine, fine. Get me a four-star general, get me an admiral who could oversee this so that the Saudis know that we're actually invested and we're sending the right kind of message. But the folks doing the real hard work, they're not the generals. Well, let me ask you a question. They're not there the are... colonels either. Right. <clears throat> And that's so often the case, you know, uh, where the real knowledge and expertise is pushed down. Uh, um, but let me ask you this. I mean, there is significant defense uh, uh, expertise uh, and specialists in the in Saudi Arabia, in the private sector. In the private sector. Exactly. That's what okay. I'm saying. Is there any way, I mean, you know, well, how comfortable are you with that? I mean, you just said it yourself. How comfortable are you that the guys who really know are in the private sector? I'm not against the private sector. I'm a capitalist more than anything, anybody you can think of, okay? But I am much more in favor of the United States government driving this process in partnership with the private sector, in collaboration with the private sector, not the other way around. I, I want to be driving the car. No, I agree 100%. Okay? What I'm saying is the talent is there. Yes, and 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 if you if you were being honest, the depth and breadth of experience is greater in the private sector than in the public sector. When it, yeah, that's why people leave government because exactly. the pay is much better. Exactly, a real challenge, a real right. challenge. 
So, so, all right. So we're facing, and and I don't want you to come across as too bleak on this because I don't think you are. No, because I'm not. You're, I'm let not. Me, before, just for our listeners, I'm just wearing I, a I black want, shirt. That's all. I know. I want, I want, no, but I want our listeners to hear your last sentence in this piece. The United States is in a seminal period in the relationship with Saudi Arabia, but Washington, Washington is half-stepping with respect to its response. Yes. I th- I th- what you're saying, I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is that we are inching our way, you know, you know, getting our way to the right solution. We're just not moving quickly or uh, aggressively or decisively enough. You, you, you said it correctly. Exactly right. I don't so, think we're appreciating the gravity and the urgency of this challenge. Right. Uh, and so, yes, we finally have a better diagnosis, but now it comes down to speed, quickness of execution and actually devoting the right kind of resources for its uh, problem set. So I want to take you to the next step. You've outlined, I think, really nicely. And that's why, again, for the third time, fourth time, fifth time, I don't know. Read the piece. It's a good piece. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Uh, so you're talking about the structural, philosophical structural challenges that we have in this immediate, uh, immediate situation, and and you've laid out a, a a path for it, and hopefully this will this will contribute to the to the energy going to try and seek some change in this situation. Why, for our U.S. security, national uh, uh, security interests, why would a a more capable, better prepared Saudi Arabia be good for us? Well, I, I wish we had started with that because that's what's most important, right? I mean, why the hell are we exactly. bothering talking about this and investing so much effort, blood, and treasure uh, if we don't have a crystal clear understanding of why this ultimately benefits us, right? So uh, here's my answer. We are now at a period where obviously we're competing with China, right? And we are focusing much of our attention and resources on the Indo-Pacific and, of course, European theater, given what's going on in Ukraine, which means that we are reducing our posture in the Middle East. Matter of fact, we have said it, we have telegraphed it to the entire world that we are de-emphasizing the region. Therefore, we need simple physics. We need our partners to step up. If we're going to draw down, somebody else is going to have to step up. Otherwise, vacuums are created. And typically, those vacuums are filled by adversaries. We don't want that. Okay? So, for the Saudis to step up, this is where our conversation becomes pertinent. They have to do X, Y, and Z. We have to do X, Y, and Z. So having a more capable Saudi that can defend itself means that we contribute far less to that mission. And we can actually trust the Saudis to perform those tasks. In the past, it was all us. It was the guardianship model. Thank God we got lucky because they weren't really attacked, except for obviously Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait and threatening the kingdom. But then after that, it was relative peace, right? And so a more capable Saudi that can contribute to collective security interests that at least has the willingness to do that, okay? That's very important. It's not just capability, but willingness. You got to incentivize them to do that, obviously. And a Saudi that is in your corner in this strategic competition with China is very important. I mean, look at... Look at how we've responded this time a little bit more muted, fine. But last time, how we responded when the Saudis decided to cut oil production. You don't, you don't think this country is going to have an increasingly important role on the world stage, on the global energy markets? Wouldn't you want an influential power like that to be on your side? Yes. So that's why this matters. That's why uh, we can... We, can we, we need capable partners. It's that simple. 
and Saudi's too big to, for us to ignore. Um, you know, we can afford not having the same kind of relationship with the smaller countries in the region, but not Saudi, not Saudi. They're way too influential. You mentioned, and one of the, one of the things you mentioned uh, in your piece is the sort of uh, vacuum that's been uh, created by lack of ambassador on seat in Saudi Arabia. And we've talked yes. about this. Finally, Michael Ratney is headed there. Thank exactly. God I met with Michael before he went there. I actually showed him this. He read it himself. I don't know if he wants people to know that, but I mean, it's no secret. It's a public document, but um, I had a good conversation, uh, share with him whatever I know about, you know, our posture there. And so hopefully there'll be a, uh, an increased effort to try to get to those things, you know, that we need to do. But thank God now we have an ambassador. Yes. For how long did we didn't have one? Five out of seven in the last seven years. Five out of the last. Well, let me rephrase that. Only two of the last seven years have we had an ambassador on seat. Yeah. Well, you can imagine how communication could be screwed up when you don't have your main representative in the partner nation uh, sitting in an embassy and communicating with the relevant stakeholders. No matter how capable the DCM is, and and I, and I think we have a capable one, but it's not the ambassador. No, it's different. You know that right? exactly, hundred um, percent. And you were talking about like, oh, the Saudis want to, you know, high level military personnel to oversee this. It's the same right. thing politically. I mean, if you don't have an ambassador, that in itself is a message. A hundred percent. And it's been a frustration. But so so, this is a fascinating conversation. I actually. I think this has captured a lot. I mean, I, I, what I wanted to do, what we wanted to do was to understand your points in this piece and then to tie it together with why it matters, which you've done beautifully. Um, I, I don't have anything to add, Lucian. Can you tell us about policy sessions, your work as a DJ and the drops why you're doing? Why don't we start with this? <laughs> well, you why also, we you also have a podcast. You You have a podcast too. No, it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation. It's actually, it's very similar to what you guys are doing. It's a one-on-one -on -one conversation uh, called the Defense Leadership Series. Um, well, I mean, as the name suggests, people from the defense community, former, yeah. current, one-on-one, 60-minute conversation about defense policy in the Middle East. And we've done uh, 19 episodes so far. The next episode I'm going to do with my latest recruit, uh, the former Marsant commander, uh, which is the Marine Corps component of CENTCOM. Uh, it is, yeah. Sam Mundy. So I'm really very much looking forward to that. But more importantly, good God, policy sessions. That's right. Um, I've been a DJ since 1997, Richard Lucian. And um, uh, as you can imagine, when you get married, you can't be the same nocturnal animal uh, DJing in clubs around the world. Uh, but now I have this, um, I don't know what to call it, the show, uh, uh, sets that I do on SoundCloud that obviously are all house trance music. And so um, <laughs> I have a number of followers, I have people who really... Uh, follow me and uh, wait for these sets. But uh, it's my passion, obviously, it's my hobby. It's more than a hobby. Um, and even though I can't play in clubs anymore, but you know, I'm a, I'm a bed DJ now, bedroom DJ. <laughs> All right, for our listeners, that's on SoundCloud, it's called Policy Sessions. Yes. And uh, if you're, oh, go ahead, Richard, sorry. No, no, just, and, and Lucian, you, 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 you probably, have, so, so, and your one-on-one -on -one discussion is called, what's it's it called? called Defense Leadership series defense leadership series and that's available on all podcasts where platforms it's uh it's on youtube it's broadcast live on youtube all, but right. also, all of the sessions are on uh, our website 
Yeah, if we could just make a recommendation, go onto LinkedIn and follow Bilal Saab because you're going to get a good mixture. Like I, I was reading before our conversation, Bilal, a uh, piece you shared on Ukraine. We, we don't really need to get into that now because we had such a good discussion, but mm-hmm. just fascinating stuff. Uh, he curates really good stuff, Bilal does. So uh, follow yeah, Bilal Tabor on LinkedIn. I just recently released something on Ukraine, and I felt it was imperative for me to share it, uh, not only because he's a teammate, obviously, but because I thought the piece was really good. Uh, so yeah, I mean, every time there's good analysis, I don't care who wrote it, I'll definitely put it on LinkedIn. Great. And we're going to put a link to your recent piece uh, after oil for security on the YouTube, our YouTube channel and on the podcast page as well. So if you're listening to this or watching this, you can just go to that and click on it. It's really so good. Definitely worth your time to read it. So Bilal Saab, political military analyst on the Middle East and U.S. policy towards the region. Thank you for joining us. Uh, stay out of trouble in those BA lounges when you see when you see Richard. Yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. Like to get the miniature uh, toothpaste so that people don't or, confiscate. Or alternatively, Bilal, whenever you go to a cool place, take me with you, and I'll bring toothpaste. <laughs> you got it. That's it. It's a priority. Thanks, Bilal. This is great. Thank you very, very much. That was our conversation with Bilal Saab. A reminder. If you want to just watch the interviews we do or any of these segments broken out, do so on YouTube. We break them out there. Nice B-roll. You can see our faces as well. If you're interested in looking (laughs) at that briefly, like staring into the sun, don't do it too long because you may blind yourself. (laughs) Richard, that was very good. That conversation with Bilal, we thank him for his time. And I think now, Richard, we should get to Yella. Saudi in a minute. Yella. You're back on. I'm back. We, 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 you know, your repertoire is endless. Well, I got my voice back, kind of, so it's That's no true. longer a hoarse whisper like it was, and I think that That's creeped true. out everybody. Um, it's still, it's you know, again, your range is, you're, you're like Mel Blunt, who did all the you know, Walt Disney characters. <laughs> was it was it Mel Blanc, right? The Oh, yes, you're right. Mel Blanc. Blanc. Yeah. Oh, Mel Blanc, believe I Mel Blanc was a... Played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, I think. But anyway, <laughs> um, good stuff. That's a, that's quite a reach, by the way. Mel Blanc. Well, I remember his I didn't name at the end that, of everything. Well, only it, that was a team reach because I didn't get it. You you took it the rest of the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, number one. All right. Uh, in surprise, OPEC Plus announces cutting oil production. Saudi Arabia, Russia, and their oil producing allies announced that they would cut production by more than 1.2 million barrels of crude a day, or more than 1% of world supplies, in an apparent effort to increase prices. The production cut was unexpected because leaders of the group, known collectively as OPEC+, Plus, said in recent days that they did not intend to make changes in their policies. The cuts, which are voluntary and start in May, could be temporary depending on economic conditions. Yeah, I mean, this is a surprise. I saw the word stunning used pretty much everywhere, massive surprise and headlines about this i don't was it i guess they didn't telegraph that they were going to do this ahead of the meeting and of course oil jumped up about five bucks to 85 dollars a barrel immediately when this happened i know saudi arabia said it would be okay with uh, lower oil prices but richard was this actually a massive surprise oil had gotten down to below 80 dollars and had kind of steadily gone there over the last few months after the banking turmoil in silicon valley that spread oil went down even more from that they said it was a quote precautionary measure i I just don't see this shocking surprise here like it may have been in october or september of last year 
Well, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, when you go back and do the math, sort of look at the tea leaves, it, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise. A couple of things. One, the, as you say, the oil prices had floated down. Brent had floated down to, you know, the mid 70s. And um, Fitch came out with their, it's actually a later, later yellow, Fitch came out with their uh, rating on Saudi Arabia. And they said Saudi Arabia's uh, break even point for oil as it was at previous forecast was $70. Now it's 76. So I only put those two together because you see, you know, the, the Saudi Arabia anyway, and o, o, other OPEC countries, OPEC countries have, you know, have break even points and they have uh, domestic considerations. Um, you know, I think Saudi Arabia much really wants it in the 80 to 90 range. And they're, going to do that, going to pursue that now, um, because as they say, they have a Saudi first policy. They're really trying to preserve and, and, uh, and, you know, give every opportunity for the vision 2030, uh, reforms and, and, you know, ch economic changes to succeed. I think this is interesting in a very short period of time. Saudi Arabia has reconditioned everybody's sort of response to what they do. Um, and essentially by saying, and as I said, we've talked about it many times in the post-Ukraine world, post-Russia invasion world, Saudi Arabia has declared that it is non-aligned, it has interests, and it's number one priority, number two priority, number three and number four and number five priorities is their domestic project, Vision 2030. And they're going to do everything possible to make sure that that has an opportunity to succeed, including obviously, you know, making sure that oil prices don't sink too low, uh, deconflicting the region. You know, the, the the agreement with Iran is a significant part of this, but they've deconflicted other areas. All of these things, trying to avoid an incident, uh, a misunderstanding, you know, something that flares up and compromises that Vision 2030 project. Yeah, Richard, we talked to in our conversation just with Bilal Saab just a few minutes ago, sort of about that non-alignment. That carries some risks when you're saying we're not aligned with anybody. I mean, the reason why they were aligned with the United States so strongly and why the relationship is changing is because they needed a they needed the United States to protect them. And they don't feel as much that way anymore. You saw a Russian warship docking in Jeddah this week. They're sort of saying, hey, we're out here non-aligned. We're on our own. We're mm -hmm. going to pursue our own fiscal policy. Fahad Nazar said the same, something similar on our conversation, our, our tripartite group there that we had a couple <laughs> yes. weeks ago on Iran. <laughs> it's oh, just boy. an interesting and a changing Saudi Arabia that's taking a more, you know, uh, confident and postured regional outlook and saying, hey, like we're doing things our way because we have our own domestic agenda that we want to see come through. So. Yeah, it's very cool. I, I, I think non-aligned might not be the proper term because I think they want to be aligned with us in terms of security and any number of the things, you know, mm -hmm. technical and 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 uh, technology and uh, investment, that sort of thing. But they want to be able to make their choices. Uh, and so assertive, I guess, is the term we might want to put to their, their foreign policy of late, including their energy policy. And this is an example of it. So, and, you know, you know, remember the brouhaha in October 2022 when they dropped 22 million barrels a day. This is another 1.2. According to experts, the real effect is more around 700,000 barrels a day. And to be honest, 
they weren't OPEC plus wasn't hitting its quota anyway. It was falling two million barrels short. So th- this had a bounce, like you say, about you know five dollars, about six percent. Um, it's settled in right now, about you know mid eighties. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, they may be right again. You know, in October they said, oh, we can do this, but it's not going to blow up the oil price. It didn't. They were right. And we'll see what happens this way around. But either way, it's just a declaration of, you know, we're going to do what is best for Saudi Arabia regardless. Yeah. And you saw the reaction from the White House. They didn't agree with it, but they weren't saying, oh, well, I never, you know, they didn't have a big fit about it. They were just like, yeah, okay. Um, I've got the vapors. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Yellow, number two. Fitch upgrades Saudi Arabia to A plus on a strong balance sheet buffers. Ratings agency Fitch on Wednesday upgraded Saudi Arabia's credit rating from A plus, excuse me, from A to A plus, citing the Gulf state's robust fiscal and external balance sheets, including a favorable debt to GDP ratio and strong sovereign net foreign assets. Oil revenue will account for about 60% of total budget revenue in 2023 to 2024, according to Fitch, despite a major government push towards developing the non-oil sectors of the economy. Quote, the upgrade also assumes ongoing commitment to gradual progress with fiscal, economic, and governance reforms, Fitch said. I think that covers it all. I mean, as we've said before, Saudi Arabia is having a moment. Economically, things are going great, but they're responsibly governing. Um, and anytime, you know, they just come in off a, a close to a $28 billion surplus in 2022, they didn't go crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, obviously they're investing heavily in these major mega projects and any number of other things. A lot of them quality of life related, um, but they're not going crazy. And and you know, rating systems like this, it's nice when Fitch and Moody's sort of all acknowledge that all right, you guys are doing pretty well and you're handling things responsibly. Um, I didn't. I was looking at Fitch. I didn't know. You know, A plus. What did that mean? Um, I guess the best thing you can do is triple A. So, you know, triple A is the highest, highest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah. Saudi Arabia is having a moment and, and, and more power to them if they can keep managing it well. And, and, and this is, you know, to, you know, speaking to the previous, uh, Yala, you know, they're having a moment and they're doing everything possible to extend that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're doing it right. They're not saying, Hey, we've got, Government revenues are up by 31%, um, $28 billion. Let's buy something with that. We just got this big check. Let's do something with it yeah, now. They're right. saying, no, 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 this this is good because when it, when we have less money, we're going to manage it in the same sort of patient, similar way of, you know, budgets come and go. But if we maintain a disciplined outlook and a disciplined posture when it comes to this stuff, we're going to be okay. Um, but it yeah. just happens to be, like you said, Saudi Arabia is having a moment now, so... Yeah, and we'll see if it holds. But their projected budget next year is is actually less than what they spent this year. But we'll see. You know, I realize this yellow number three is right in your wheelhouse. So, but I'll go ahead and do it and then uh, send it your way. So, Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fills its VC portfolio. The venture arm of Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, Sanabil Investments, has revealed dozens of U.S. and European venture capital and private equity firms in its portfolio, shedding new light on the kingdom's expanding global economic footprint. The fund's portfolio contains 18 startups, along with big-name VC and growth funds like California-based Andreessen Horowitz, 500 Global, and New York-based General Atlantic. So I thought this was interesting, Richard. I think it's pronounced Sanabil, or at least that's oh, what I've heard, sorry. but it, it reads 
Sanibel. And so I say Sanibel, even though I think it's Sanibel, but I'm actually not sure. So Richard, I thought this was a weird story because Sanibel on their website for a long time has listed all the VC funds and PE funds that they had invested in, at least as of October or November, for sure. And maybe not all of them, but most of them were listed. What generated this story was the FII event in Miami last week at which you had Adam Newman speaking and some of these other luminaries from the tech world um, talking at these, this event. And a lot of them said, you know, Adam Newman said that he wanted to open up his startup in Riyadh when it was ready. And you just sort of had this, the optics of these VC dudes from Silicon Valley talking about Saudi Arabia. And I think that's what got Axios and, and I could be wrong. I'm not, I'm just guessing here, but I think that's what got Axios and Bloomberg to say, yeah, uh, is the PIF investing in any of these guys or who has the PIF invested in? Of course, the PIF is, owns more than 50% of Sanabel, which existed before the PIF took a position in it. The PIF also owns 100%, I believe, of JADA Fund of Funds, which is about a billion dollar fund that mostly invests within Saudi Arabia, but not exclusively. So I guess the story here was the transparency of, well, who in Silicon Valley is taking Saudi money? And that's just what came out. But I'm certain that Sanabel had all of this information on their website as of last year. So I'm yeah. not sure what this, maybe there were some surprises on there, but these names, Andreessen Horowitz, A16Z, uh, 500 Global, General Atlantic, they were all on there. So, you know, maybe, maybe we should have reported that Richard in November and really broken <laughs> some news, but yeah. Well, that's added value and it makes sense. I mean, and you would have, you know, you would have been paying attention to this, getting down in the weeds on this sort of thing. And, <clears throat> and, you know, it makes sense that the prompt for this was, you know, the whatever controversy you might be associated with Saudi investment. And um, it also makes, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the real challenges of these sovereign wealth funds is they're dealing with such enormous amounts of money. Uh, they can't just, you know, they, it's very hard for them to, to, to put a billion here. I mean, you know, a couple, you know, 25 million here, because they end up, they'd end up with, with, with 400 clients, you know, you know, they have to find people who can, who are good for this to begin with, but also who can manage significant flow of money. And I'm interested too, the Sanabel, 2 billion seems like a small amount compared to the larger, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's it is, and it, I guess it isn't. I mean, it's if the fund size of the PIF is now north of six hundred and fifty billion, uh-huh. so that's you know it's it's less than one percent of the total fund. But you kind of have to remember that a lot of the PIF's holdings are in equities, and you know, Lucid. Right. I mean, there's very little transparency as to what the PIF, you know, how that money is allocated and all of that stuff. Because as you noted, it's so big that it's like you know, where is where is this $20 billion? And so, yeah, you're right, though. It seems like it's low for their exposure to PE and VC, which, you know, if you're diversifying a portfolio, it seems like it should be more than less than 1%. But uh, I mean, yeah. it's, yeah, I, I, it would be interesting. I bet if you could get inside the books, there's more, there's more than that. And I say that because, you know, very intentionally, you know, the PIF has, you know, changed up its investing style to be, you know, radically conservative to, to be a little more. And for PIF, for, for sovereign wealth funds, they're actually on the more adventurous side. 
uh, obviously trying to generate returns. Yeah, I, I would be interested. You know, again, I, I I don't have access to the books, and maybe I'm I'm way off base here. But it seems like I feel like so. You know, when you do that two billion compared to six hundred fifty, you know, billion, that's a third of a percent. Mm-hmm. Seems you know? low. It does. It seems low. The PIF does have that dual mandate where they really need to generate a return, but they also have to make sure that there's a local value or a local component if possible. JADA Fund of Funds is the same thing where they're looking to sort of jumpstart the Saudi ecosystem to make sure that there's VC money available for local startups. Sinabal is just investing for a return. Right. So they've kind of mixed it up that way. But yeah, I mean... You're right. It would be really fun to just open up the binder document of the of the PIF's total yeah. holdings and pour through it. But um, I don't think such a binder is publicly available, and I don't think it will be for a while. But yeah, you have <laughs> to, to say that. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, you would have to say too that the PIF. I mean, like they were managing less than two hundred billion dollars before, right before the pandemic. So they've three x in three years. There's a lot that goes into that 3X, but that's really good. And they've made a lot. I mean, they've made bad bets just as any fund manager would, but they also, you know, made some really smart bets at the beginning of the pandemic into things like Live Nation. And, you know, so they've they've invested fairly well, I would say. And yeah. And that's what you, you know, to your point, they were very active. And, you know, during the pandemic, when when global markets were down and, you know, sweep, uh, scooping up you know, undervalued equities at, at significant amounts of them. So, yeah. So, yeah, but it is interesting, boy, you know, but, but an enterprise, when you're trying to manage all your investors and trying to make sure things are responsibly and well invested and you're, you're covering all the sectors, it's a huge operation and, and they're expanding in every way. They've got a New York office, but they're, you know, so it, it, it's quite, quite the enterprise. Yeah. And I should just, I mean, as you were saying that, I just thought of another thing too, Richard, they're also starting companies from scratch which is not something a wealth manager or a sovereign wealth fund typically does. And that's really the riskiest of all of the things, right? But if you have a dual mandate, you're saying, well, the Saudi coffee company is going to be a good investment because we're going to be the ones generating it from scratch. And we have a good position in the market here to get it into a, a position of profitability. So, but, but there are, that's one of the things they're doing. And that takes a lot of people to manage the start of a startup with, yeah. with that type of money. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, yellow number four. Cool. The top envoys for Saudi Arabia and Iran will meet in Beijing on Thursday. They met today, Richard, in Beijing. Yes. Um, and this was confirmed by an Iranian official. And a and there's actually a photo now out of the meeting. The two regional rivals work uh, to hash out their steps of diplomatic rapprochement amid a China broker deal. So essentially, today what they did is they signed an agreement or came to an agreement on the establishment of embassies and are now still moving forward uh, to reestablish their ties for the first time in seven years, which is shocking. Uh, yeah. I That's mean, nice. shocking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and I don't think, I don't have much to say. I mean, it, you know, they, the March 10th agreement, when it was announced, you said, you know, we give you two months to start get these diplomatic niceties and details in place. And so they're moving quickly on it. And again, it goes back to what we're talking about a lot is this, you know, this, you know, secures in, in, a, in an additional way the, the 2030 project, 20 Vision, Vision 2030 project. And obviously it, it might have significant other benefits, um, you know, in terms of tensions in, in 
in Yemen. I mean, we'll see Lebanon, Syria. I mean, I, I'm dubious, uh, but that's neither here nor there. You know, it's better that, from their perspective. It's better that they're talking than not. Well said. The only thing that I have to add to this is that I, I kind of want to go on record because it, these things don't age well if you get it wrong. And so I kind of want to go on record and hope that I'm wrong, but I just don't trust Iran at all. And so I don't, uh, as person, just as an innocent bystander, I, I sort of think that they're always up to no good. So I hope this works out, but I also can see it not if they just continually violate this agreement or the spirit of the agreement. So I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Um, you know, there's, they're, they're hurting, um, uh, economically, uh, you know, common eye has felt and said that they feel isolated and they are, uh, but they've spent decades, uh, building up assets, these non-state proxies, uh, in order to counter, a, you know, a U.S. in the region and also U.S. allies. Saudi Arabia is still a U.S. ally. They're still very much at war and and in contention with the U.S. I just don't see them mitigating these assets in a significant way. Maybe they'll moderate. And again, the other question is: is these assets have been in so much in place? have been in place for so long, you know, maybe they're not that interested in being curtailed or, or changing their, or, or going away, much less, you know, you know, reducing their activity. So, you know, the things, questions about Houthis in Yemen or Hamas or Hezbollah, uh, yeah. you know, is there motivation for Iran to really pull them back? And if they, there were, can they? Great so point. it's a lot. So anyway, but I think I think from Saudi Arabia's perspective, they're, they're not, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, they, they, there's been discussions that have been had, I'm sure, that have gone into these issues and, and that sort of thing. But I think Saudi Arabia, to be honest, and if I had to just make it really simplified, feels like this relationship might spare them collateral damage if Israel attacks Iran. Yeah. And Israel, is, yeah. Sorry. And even if it does nothing more than that, then it's good. Yep. And Israel is in such a tough spot politically, domestically now. This is sort of the climate that, you know, enables an action like that to sort of I, I just kind of speculating here, but it seems very unstable in Israel right now. And so, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I, I just want to apologize to our regular listeners who listen to us every week. It's a lot of you guys. So we appreciate that. But for those of you who don't listen to us every week, and are just coming across this segment on YouTube. There's a lot of you as well that watch individual segments. Please go back two weeks ago. We had a three uh, panel, well, three separate interviews on this subject. And really credit goes to my co-host, Mr. Richard Wilson, because he reaches deep into his unbelievably deep Rolodex of contacts and brings the best out for things like that. So what we got that one week was really three interviews on this topic with three perspectives, one from a Saudi with a expertise in Saudi-Israeli relations, another from the view from Washington, Dr. John Alterman, um, and sort of his um, patient and very long view uh, look at things, which is just so awesome to listen to. And then Fahad Nazar, the spokesman for the Saudi embassy in D.C. So it so credit to Richard for for bringing that together and and bringing a lot of these guests on here. It's a huge uh, it's a huge undertaking to oh. schedule and get people to agree and all that stuff. So if you're just watching this segment, come across it 
and you haven't watched those interviews, watch them. They're fantastic. It's great. Really great stuff. And if you're listening on an audio podcast, I'm blushing right now. That's really very nice of you, Lucian. Oh, no. I mean, this is a team effort. We're all sort of pulling in things and you're pushing them out because you, you produce all this. Um, but yeah, I think I think we're of, of a similar mind here, and we I don't we don't want to simplify it. But you know, the, clear, clearly from the Saudi perspective, the net benefits outweigh the 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 negative elements of it. Completely, Richard, number five. five. Is this me? Uh, the head of Central Intelligence Agency, Agency CIA, Bill Burns, was in Saudi Arabia this week to meet with officials and reinforce Washington's commitment to intelligence cooperation. A U.S. official told Al Hour via English. Uh, earlier. The CIA director's quiet trip comes on the heels of a surprising agreement signed between Riyadh and Tehran, brokered by China to restore diplomatic ties, reopen embassies, and exchange ambassadors in the next month. Yeah. I mean, Bill Burns, Richard, he spoke at the 2009 event we put together right as I came right out of UVA. I I remember we did that at the Georgetown Four Seasons. He was a keynote speaker. We organized that conference with Steve Clemens. I know you remember it It was the U.S. Saudi uh, Saudi relations in a world without equilibrium. That was 2009. Imagine imagine a crystal ball, (laughs) how you'd feel about it today. But that was just such an awesome event. And he spoke at that. And anyway, he's a career diplomat, has been at embassies around the world, under Secretary of State, and then was head of um was it the carnegie endowment or he was the head of a major think tank in dc before doing this job so he's and the cia director is a huge deal so this is a big deal and also we had a great conversation with Bilal saab we didn't talk at all about u.s saudi intelligence relations they're very tied in with with the military but um the u.s and saudi arabia have had a really strong history of sharing intelligence and defeating isis and Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula for all intents and purposes. So it's good to see this for sure. And that's a good, that's your second good poll. Mel Blanc and, and the U.S. Saudi in in a world without equilibrium. (laughs) You're you're like, you're king of the throwbacks today. That's nice. (laughs) Um, You know, this was in here, this, it's, you know, I think this is included. We, and I think we, it was, it was good for us to include to remind people that, you know, um, um, all the sound and fury, and it's significant, you know, the, the relations, changing relationship that Saudi Arabia is seeking with China and China with the region, and obviously the ongoing relationship with Russia and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, has not yet superseded the U.S. relationship. The U.S. relationship is deep, wide, and long-term. And, and you know, the, one of the things that Bilal spoke about in, in the defense area is that we just need to update it and maybe update it with a little more vigor and that sort of thing, but it's there and it's strong and it's, and it's been lasting. And there's, this is why, you know, because Mm -hmm. there's these, these connections uh, remain and they remain strong. Yeah. The United States rules. (laughs) You definitely (laughs) want the United States as your security and military partner and intelligence sharing partner because it's number one. We're not homers at all. We're not homers at all. Totally unbiased. <laughs> USA all the way. Yes. Where's my flag? My flag's right there, so I can't reach it. It is <laughs> It is amazing, Richard, because there's, you know, global politics are shaped by our perceptions of the world, and they always, perceptions change with time. 
but you also have data on sizes of military. And then, you know, does a military of large size even matter? And I'm sorry to get off topic here, but it's like Russia had a large military. They can't seem to do anything in Ukraine, can't advance because Ukrainians are tough. And, you know, so size of military doesn't really matter. But if you look at the number of aircraft carriers out there, it's like the U.S. is completely preponderant in this domain. So the U.S. military rules. I'm a huge fan. Um, that's my that's my uh, little little side tangent there, but uh, it just always it always gets you excited. And you look up things like aircraft carriers on Wikipedia, and it's like, you know, we we have like fifty or something in the pipeline, and due dates in twenty thirty seven and stuff. And you're just like, wow, we're just we're just going to continue on this path of militarization forever. So you know, it's just apropos to nothing, you know, because obviously my oldest is a is a young officer in the army, and. Um, you know, the, the hardware, I think, is impressive. The technology is impressive. But really what the Chinese and the Russians want is the personnel and the yeah. way American, uh, you know, basically pushing leadership down. The ability for, you know, the, the doctrine within uh, American, the U.S. armed military, where, you know, decisions can be made at the at the as low a level as possible. And which is why, you know, in, in you know, so much went wrong in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And this is why you have a lot of generals killed and senior, you know, uh, officers killed because they have to be at the front because there's no confidence or capability or initiative on the part of, you know, majors, captains, lieutenants, or whatever their equivalents are to make decisions in real time and on the ground. And that's something that, you know, U.S. training uh, has always, always prioritized. And it's it's the reason why the U.S., despite every, all the criticism and despite everything else, remains a very significant and effective fighting force is because of its people. Its material and technology is, is also, you know, uh, top of the line. But the tr- officer training and the, the ethic is what, China and Russia really envy. Mm-hmm. So yes. that's my little bit. You no, know. and thank you to your son for service. You, your son is one of my favorite people. Is such a good dude. You've really raised him very perfectly. I can only aspire for my son to come close to that because he's oh, just no, such a great no. guy. No, he really is. Um, and thank him for his service for me, if you would, because he's you know. I will, and you, you he he hit you upside the head because yeah, you would hate this. Yeah, you hate this. What are you talking about, Lucian? He'd probably roll his eyes big time. Um, Yeah, well said. It was. I just was wondering, like you know, when we were just talking now, like I wanted to sort of ask Bilal why, like why have we not established this SCO? Like I wonder what the thinking is. I mean, they in the military brass they have, you know, they, it was well received his piece. And I think there's interest in doing it. And I wonder if like, maybe that's just our secret sauce. If we don't want to really, you know, share a lot of our, like you said, our, one of our competitive advantages is the people, the personnel, maybe, I don't know, maybe they're keeping it close. I, I, anyway, I don't know. But I, I, I have a theory and, and I, I didn't mention it yesterday, but I don't know if we need to go into here, but my sense is, and this is one reason why I think Bilal is not hypercritical of the situation. He recognizes the logjam and the, and the uh, sort of bureaucratic uh, obstacles involved. You know, those three, historically Saudi Arabia internally, uh, very consciously set up stovepipes. So the Ministry of Defense was one thing, 
Saudi Arabian National Guard is another thing. Ministry of the Interior is another thing, all overseen by, you know, members, key members of the royal family. If you look at it, Yusuf is is engaged with Army. Sang is with National Guard. Uh, the USA MAG with Intelligence, Ministry of Interior. So, you know, I think, you know, we set it up this way to be very bureaucratic, very separated, very non-integrated. Because the Saudis wanted this. Now the Saudis want something entirely different. Mohammed bin Salman has come in starting 2017, 2018. He says, yeah, we want this all together. We want to do this better. We want to make better decisions, better planning. And I think what, what you know, Bilal is saying, yes, let's just move quicker towards this goal because it's what the Saudis want. It's what we want. But you do, you know, we are sort of victims of being responsive to what the Saudis wanted for, for decades, so anyway, that's this whole different side. So, but I think we'll hopefully we'll get there. And the, the beauty of having Bilal on, the beauty of Bilal finding an audience, is that he, that's what he's saying. You know, this is the, this is where the Saudis want to go. This is where we want to go. Let's let's step to it. And I have some ideas on how to get there. That is such a good point. That's a great point. Um, Bilal, anyway, we got to have you back. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was a complete that was digression. You know? <laughs> Richard Yella, number six. The UN is going forward with an operation to prevent a disastrous oil spill from a rusting tanker in the Red Sea. Mumtaz, the United Nations Mumtaz. Development Program, has purchased a ship to take 1.1 million barrels of crude oil that has been sitting in a decrepit supertanker, the SFO Safar, which we've discussed on this program before, off the port of Raz Issa in Yemen's west coast. It has contracted SMIT Salvage BV, a Dutch firm specializing in marine salvage, to extract the oil and remove the saffir to safety. Saffir to safety. <laughs> Tongue twister right there. The replacement <laughs> vessel is currently in dry dock in China, being fitted for its new purpose as a floating oil storage vessel. It is expected to arrive in the Red Sea next month. Awesome. Sweet. It, we, it's good to end up on a positive because yes. we have talked about this. And this is like a, a, a you know, just a, a, a waiting ecological time bomb. I guess, uh, you know, it's got it's got significantly more uh, oil in it than the Exxon Valdez. You know, if it were to explode or, or break apart, you know, fish stocks would take 25 years to recover. It closed the ports of Hudaydah and Salif. It, 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 you know, it, it would, you know, clean up operation 20. It's still... And and it's just been you know sort of a, a tremendous concern. Houthis have not really been very helpful. Uh, UN raising money for it. Uh, I think they 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 raised now close to 100 million dollars. Saudi put in 10 million. They're actually doing a crowdfunding for the remainder. But anyway, this is good news. If this can get remediated before it it causes just tremendously regretful, regrettable consequences. Yeah, totally preventable thing if we could get our act together. And it sounds like we did. So it's a, a major story that just doesn't happen. And that's great. Yeah. And Richard, I think we should wrap up now because we have not mentioned the word on this episode. And we're going to do it right now because it is Masters Week. And yes. there is some terrific golf on TV. But I mention it only because I would like to get your thoughts on one thought that I had, which is that I'm rooting for any live golfer to win the Masters this week because I think that would be amazing for the overall conversation of live versus PGA, which I think is largely media constructed, but I think that would really get the headlines going. So I'm rooting for any of the live golfers to win this week. 
I had the very same thought. I think that'd be great. Maybe Cameron Smith can can pull through uh, or someone else. What are they? I think there's 17 live golfers there. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that upsides a little bit. Yeah, I agree. It'd be, it'd be a lot of fun. It'd stir the pot. Stir the pot because I think the... I think that's what people need is to have this issue just dragged right back up. It was very cool watching the par three contest a little bit late last night. I recorded it um, and seeing kind of all the families there, which is neat. And then sort of seeing it's just weird now to see some of the live golfers in the mix. Yeah. So very much rooting for that. Um, Yeah. Richard, great episode. We will see you next week. Thank you very much. Another good one. Thank you. And even, you know, I love these. I learned, I learned a good bit today. It's, uh, you know, appreciation to you on those. Um, oh, thank you. And and to you as well. It really is just like going to class. I mean, the amount that I've learned just as a personal, from me personally, over the last 16 months that we've been doing this now, 17 months. Yeah. It's amazing. So yeah, yeah. it's, if, if anybody's a big winner here, it's me. Cause I'm just learning more and more every time we do it. So tip, tip of that to you, Mr. Ziegler. Thank you. And to you as well. See you next week. All right.